Hello and welcome to Small Batches with me, Adam Hawkins. I'm your guide to software delivery excellency. In each episode, I share a small batch of the theory and practices along the path. Topics include DevOps, Lean, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Today, I am joined by John Willis. John is the author of the book Deming's Journey to Profound Knowledge. The book is part biography and part business history, covering the better part of the 20th century. Most of us know Deming from his work in Japan in the late 1940s and 1950s, then as a figure in the American manufacturing resurgence in the 1980s. That's the second and third act of a three-act career. Deming went to Japan in his 50s. He had an entire career even before going to Japan. John's book tells the story of Deming's time at Hawthorne Labs and his involvement in the United States World War II effort. These chapters on his early works were the most enjoyable for me because I'd never heard this part of the story before. The book is just a fun and engaging read. If you're familiar with Deming, then it tells how Deming found profound knowledge through stories and first-hand accounts. There's so much context in this book that you simply cannot get from reading Deming's books. If you're unfamiliar with Deming, then the book will introduce you to a man who's shaped industry and the world today. I highly recommend this book. Now I give you my conversation with John Willis on his book, Deming's Journey to Profound Knowledge. Also, don't forget to listen through to the end for a special announcement from myself and John. Enjoy. John, welcome back to Small Batches. I know you've been on the podcast before, but for the listeners who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I've been, um, I always sort of joke as you get to my age, you round down. So I'll say 40 years in this industry, but definitely a little more than that. Been in infrastructure and operations my whole life, really, you know, right from my first company, um, did mainframe stuff, been through like four or five generations of technology. I've uh, been fortunate enough to be in the right place, right time to always sort of hit the wave of the neck, you know, see the wave, but hit the wave. You know what I mean? It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to to actually catch it. Right. So this, you know, this sort of last wave, if you will, has been sort of DevOps. Right. And DevOps has been very good to me and was fortunate enough to be one of the early pioneers of DevOps, along with Patrick DeBar and, and Damon Edwards and just a long list of shoulder giants. But but um, was able to work with Gene Kim very closely, just got involved in him when he was about five years into the Phoenix Project. We just started having conversations about what was going to, I'm sure most of your listeners know the Phoenix Project is a novel, right? So the, the question kept coming up, like, what are people going to do after they finish the book, right? And mm. it's the same, right? You know, Golrat had the same thing, right? People would... Like what, so you read the novel, great, now what do I do, right? In fact, there was a lack of, really what to do next, really from the, you know, and in fact, Gene wind up taking a course at University of Washington <laughs> to, to find out what to do next. So the what to do next started with a conversation with Patrick DeBar, myself and Gene, and we sort of worked together for quite a few years. And and Jez came in and put it, Jez Humble put some rocket fuel into the project as Jez does for everything he touches. Um, and so the DevOps Handbook, so the DevOps Handbook, and then was fortunate enough to do another book called uh, Beyond the Phoenix Project, sort of modeled after Golrat's Beyond the Goal, and a couple more books. And so startups, I've done probably, I think, 10 startups, most of them miserable failures, uh, sold a company to Docker, sold a company to Dell, you know, so a lot of different crazy things. 
So the reason why I have you on the show today is to talk about your most recent book, a book about Deming, and kind of how I got a little backstory for the listeners and how I got connected to you and why I now care so much about Deming is really through listening to you talk about Deming on your own podcast. And the more I read about Deming, you know, you tell this story about how somebody came and tapped you on the head and say, John, John, it all goes back to Deming. I thought, yeah, okay, yeah. who's this Deming guy? I go read more about him. And now the harder it is to separate him from my understanding of the work and life and all sorts of things. Like you see Deming, you see Deming in so many different ways, which is why I am excited to talk about your new book. So tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. I don't know if you want me to make this announcement, but boy, if you write a book, Adam, like there were a bunch of people in writing a book that, you know, if writing a book, you know, one of the things I learned on writing a book by myself, so most of the books I've written with collaboration, right? And you feel ownership, but you don't feel full ownership, right? Mm -hmm. But this was my book, right? And I realized I had such a great network. And, you know, we had met on the podcast and, and you know, and I sent you the book. And you don't know, like you send it to, I sent it in waves, like the first revision, second wave. And you send it to some people and they're like, give me the book and they don't read it, right? And then so, and you never know who is going to be that person that reads it or doesn't read it, mm -hmm. right? Like you can't, like that's what it is, right? Like people, some people read a book the night you give it to them. Some people won't ever read it. They're amazing people either way. But you were amazing because not only did you read it right away, you sent me back this color-coded, the amount of information and the work that you put into the analysis. Like, I'll never forget that. Like, it's in my heart, the work you put into that. You know, you did it because I know you're a student. You know, I follow you, of course. You're a student of learning, and that's why we get along. But the fact that you did that for my book was just incredible. So anyway, let me get that out of the way. Well, my pleasure. I wanted to mirror the effort that you put into it and do my bit, if I could, yeah. to improve the quality of the end product for anybody who was going to buy the book. You definitely did. Pleasure, well, truly. So why I wrote it, I talked about this in a little book. In fact, earlier I was saying, I, I met Gene. He was about halfway finished with the Phoenix Project. It wasn't even called the Phoenix Project. I said, well, can I get a copy of it? You know, And he's like, well, it's not done. I said, you know, and I kept pestering him, like, you know, can I get an early copy? He said, tell me what, read this book by Elliot Gorat first. It was the goal, right? Mm -hmm. read the goal. And I've read like, I, I, I read probably within a very short period, four or five books. I mean, I, I couldn't get enough of Elliot Gorat. Like, I, like, okay, this guy gets me, right? And we were at uh, the first DevOps days in the U.S., and Ben Rockwood, who is just another amazing human, he's, you know, he reads operations books. He's... I, I worked with him uh, way back. He was at Chef and different places, and he's he's an incredible person. But we were in open spaces about uh, theory of constraints, which go rats theory of constraints, right? And and I was going on about you know sorry, theory of constraints, and like and, and I felt myself a you know pretty good cocktail expert, <laughs> party expert on the subject. Like he would never do this because he's not this kind of person. But like in, in a way, it felt like he tapped me on the head, going, "Oh, John, John, it all goes back to Deming." I'm like, no, no, who's this Deming guy? No, nah, you know, like, because I don't have an industrial engineering background, right? And and so he challenged me. He, he said, you know, I know you're like, you're DevOps, you talk about DevOps, you talk about the principles, I know you understand the principles. He said, just go read Deming's 14 points. And I read Deming's 14 points, and I'm like, where did this guy come from? You know, and and then like you said, it actually, at that point, almost becomes a curse. Don't read Danella Meadows' Thinking in Systems, because then that's all you'll do is think of yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it is like that with Deming, and everybody you talk to, it becomes almost an addiction. 
and and to the people that are learners and thinkers and right like and so I I jumped on the train and and uh, and then when we did Beyond the Phoenix Project, uh, you know the idea was I, Gene was going to do a section on uh, Golrat and I was going to do a section on Deming and I did all this research. And I started finding these uh, sort of interesting stories. And I, I'm a big fan of Michael Lewis. I know some people think it's sort of not academic, mm -hmm. but yeah, I love his books, right? I, he figures out a way to give you a storytelling version of very complicated stuff. You know, like if you gave me a book on sabermetrics and you know statistics with R and baseball, I mean, now I probably would buy it. But when I read Moneyball, I, I you know, like, yeah, no. Or if you gave me a book about, you know, latency arbitrage and dark trading pools, you know, and flashbacks, right? And, and you know, and, and, you know, and on and on and on. So he does this. And as I kept finding, and Gene originally, he said, dude, you got to write a book about Deming, you know, right after we did Beyond the Phoenix Project. And there was, there's probably 25 books about Deming out there. You know, I, I would say maybe 12 of them. I, I, I don't know the numbers now, but like maybe 12 of them are worth reading. 25, you know, the next sort of 10 or 12, probably keep it in your library for something if you're if you're going to go nuts on Deming. But they're all basically the same. They're like 5, 10, 20 pages on his background, which is the same story. And right. then it's all this management philosophy. And I, I started picking up these sort of Michael Lewis, like, you know, I got a chapter on this nurse that could write a book about herself, Doris Quinn, right? That was an amazing story. And I saw a video of her and, and, uh, and then it was just the, and then he was at Hawthorne and how you got Hawthorne works and Hawthorne is this Mecca going on in, in the, you know, early uh, 20th century. Right. And, and so I started realizing, oh, I've got to write a Michael Lewis version book of this story. And, and, and it went on for about, you know, I'd collect data and, and, and then it was actually the pandemic where I realized, you know, are you going to do this thing, John, or not, right? Now you, know, mm -hmm. now you have time. I made a little money from, you know, a couple of things I had done, companies I sold, some executive positions I was in. And I just challenged myself, like, you know, quit bullcrapping yourself. You know, if you're not going to, if you're going to write it, write it now. And I, I found a consultant. I, you know, I went through all that. I, I sort of learned a little bit from how Gene wrote The Phoenix Project. He didn't do it all on his own, Right. And so there was some tips there. And uh, and what was interesting, so that's what, you know, so that, and with the idea of like, could I tell a story? And then the first thing I realized when I started putting down the outline and trying, like I, I'd been collecting directories and I had like sort of pseudo chapters, like there's got to be a chapter on it. But once I realized I was going to do it in anger, I realized the real story was, where did he come up with this system of profound knowledge? He didn't invent it, right? Like he, it was all there. So the arc became, and I had to learn the arc through multiple revisions. You know, my first revision was like, you know, one of my best friends, like yelling at me, getting mad at me. Like, why do you have these stories in here? What do they have to do with like, what are you trying to say? You know, but I, I, I sort of learned that there was an arc that was, there's this notion of profound knowledge and it's just out there. And, it, and we'll talk about that because it's the key of why people who hear about Deming, read about Deming, they take the baton and then they go nuts on Deming. It is because there's this notion of this idea of profound knowledge. And he codified it in his last book, basically the year he dies, called System of Profound Knowledge. And it has, of the kind of people who listen to your show, the kind of people we talk to, who we meet, at, it just makes sense. It's funny that you tell the story about the book in that way because... While I was listening to you, I was thinking about the system profound knowledge. Like just for a listener, let's remember there's the four points there. Appreciation of a system, 
understanding of variation, understanding of psychology, and theory of knowledge. And now I think the subtitle in the book is like how Deming's journey or discovery of profound yeah, Deming's knowledge. Journey to profound so like knowledge. you you yeah. take the system of profound knowledge and think, you know, how do we know what we know? The book basically tells the story of that question from Deming's perspective. How did he come to discover the system of profound knowledge? And you cover that through his early life, his work, his really long career, actually, which is kind of interesting just from an arc perspective. You mentioned Hawthorne. He's there. His participation in World War II, then his journey to Japan after, that sets the the seeds for sort of the Deming that we know. But then he's sort of under the radar for 30 years until yeah. the 80s when the U.S. is like, okay, we're getting your asses kicked here. What's going on? It's like, oh, 30 years ago, this guy went over went over to Japan and taught them these things. And then we get, you know, the 80s and 90s. But his whole career was a spanning almost it's like 60, 70 years. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, 70 years, really, basically. And, he, and the one interesting thing, too, is, you know, when I was interviewing Doris Quinn, and she's in a chapter, she's this sort of nurse that that like starts out as just a nurse and becomes one of the leading quality experts at MD Anderson. And, and mm -hmm. she gets in the last, uh, last six or eight months traveling with Deming, you know, just having this amazing experience of him mentoring her. And, and she pointed out, like, people don't realize that he went, so Deming is mostly famous or most people who have heard of Deming know him as the sort of the person who sort of, I don't like to say the guy who created the miracle in Japan, you know, Japan right. created the miracle in Japan, but he was an important figure after World War II. You know, MacArthur tries to rebuild. I cover the gory details of how he gets there and, and what he does. But um, so most people were like, oh, yeah, no, he's the guy that sort of turned Japan on his head. Right. And and then in the 80s, we find out, oh, it's that guy, this octogenarian who's 80 years old is the guy that why Japan's kicking our ass. But Doris Quinn points out, you know, people, he was 50 when he went to Japan. Mm -hmm. Think about like your accomplishments, you know, when you're 50 years old. Right. And then the, the thing that always blows me away is he, he basically lives to 93, right? And so he has basically a 70-year career. For basically 60 years, he does all this incredible stuff. You know, he's he he's the first one to do sampling in the census. You see, he redefines statistical. He literally takes statistical um, process control and mm -hmm. turns it into a sort of common way to do things, right? He has all these things, and then pre-war, He's involved in so many things. You know, he's he teaches a class that um, they, they say the viral effect of this sort of way to do quality possibly want us to war with tanks and all. And then he's also part of like one of the things I found that a lot of people didn't know about, which I call it classified, which was all the work he did at um, this Aberdeen Proving Grounds. And this is where they were doing this is Norbert Wiener was. This is where Herbert Simon was. Like this was the think tank to figure out like missile trajectories to compute missile stuff. Um, Claude Shannon was there, you know, and then after and nobody even knows this stuff. Right. And then after that, he goes to Japan, he creates this, you know, so-called quote unquote miracle in Japan. But here's the thing. Then you, like then he sort of disappears because in America, they don't know who he is. And in 1980, NBC does a documentary and I try to start the book off with like, I'm going to shock you right in the beginning is they do a, a documentary. It's called, you know, if Japan can, why can't we? Everybody in America finds out not only are we getting our butts kicked, 
But it was an American who's 80 years old that's done it. It was like in the last seven or nine minutes, they interview him. The CEO of Ford Motors like calls him. You know, the kind of funny thing about Deming too is he wouldn't take work unless the executive was going to be involved. I don't have the exact script. It, it sort of goes like this, you know, that uh, the CEO of Ford, uh, Donald Peterson, you know, hey, I, you know, I saw your documentary. I really want to bring you in. I've seen what you've done. I, I, I think these are the ideas that would... Uh, Help us, and they were struggling with trying to understand why. Uh, there was a great transmission story to understand, like why the Japanese transmissions were so much better than the uh, the American-made transmissions. So I think he saw Deming and realized, oh, that's the reason. And so Deming's like, well, we're going to have to work together. And you know, Peterson's like, no, 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 I'm the CEO of Ford, you know, Mister. Yeah. And, and like Deming hangs up on him, you know, like and he calls him back, like, hey, don't hang up on me. I'm, the, you know, again. I'm making up my own little script, but like th this was common for him. Like, and he'd be like, "Why did you hang up me?" It's like, "Well, you know, I'm not going to waste my time with you unless you're going to." But I, I, you got to understand, Mister Deming, you, I, I'm a CEO of Ford Motors. I can't work with you. I'll, I'll give you the right people, gang. <laughs> and finally, went, okay, okay, don't hang up. I will work with you. And that's the way he was with all these companies. But the 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 real killer point was. So from that point, for the next decade of his life, he does the most significant work. I mean, every company in the world, but certainly the Pfizer's, the GM's, the you name the Fortune 100 company, and they were the executives were bringing him in every week. And he worked almost every week for the last decade of his life. So when you're 80 years old, the last decade of your life is the most prominent. I mean, I don't even know if I'll make it to 80, but let alone have the most prominent decade of my life in my 80s and at 90 91 his uh, his last book new economics comes out what 93 mm -hmm. so he's probably penning it in 92 at 92 he takes and creates his most significant manifesto which is all the learnings which is basically the definition of system profound knowledge and, and to me that you know that that's a story within the story you know that the last decade of your life at 50 you do like an incredibly significant thing you know at, at 80 for a decade you do incredible work i was talking to somebody recently who was a deming sort of expert they knew him they met him and there was this thing in his life i mean he literally on the last couple of lectures, he'd show up with like, you know, oxygen mask and he'd get sick. He'd have to sleep for two hours and then lecture. And uh, it was one of the writers said something like uh, the, the question they asked him after he died, like, how could you let him? And she's like, you kidding me? Let him? You know, so um, when in our industry, we meet people that like love to learn. You know, it's obviously from following you that you love to learn and that's that was Deming. And that's why I think people who like to learn or love to learn or, you know, the the theory of knowledge, right, is epistemology. It's the, you know, how do we know what we know, which is the fundamental first question. So I, I changed the order of system profound knowledge. And I don't know there is an order. I mean, they say, in fact, people get mad at me, like there is no order. And I get that. Like they all have to work in unison. Yeah. But I do think of like the first question of everything you do is how do you really know? what you think you know, right? And, you know, and then you get into sort of variation, which is really, um, you know, analytical statistics. Now that you think you have a hypothesis, you know, that's statistical process control, it's variation, it's common cause. So, so, like, that's how you start separating out what you think you know, you know, and then you sort of put the coding of the third sort of lens of found knowledge, which is psychology. 
which is really about bias and in, intrinsic motivation and making sure that you sort of unmask. You know, and when you li- if you're listening this first time, you never heard Deming, you're like saying, well, I read a book about that. <laughs> I read a book about that. I saw a president. And then, you know, what's the last one? It's appreciation of systems, which is systems thinking. Yeah. What better model of what we learn in IT, infrastructure, development, DevOps, all the stuff we do. I mean, what I, I can't think of a better um, four pillars to think about all the things that we work on and work with. Yeah. And there's something to be said, too, if you track Deming's career, right, he's an Oxygenarian, 80 years old, that, you know, he writes New Economics in the early 90s, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years, he comes into software and IT through the DevOps handbook, the goal, like Gene Kim's focus on the goal, we get the Phoenix Project sort of gets us in this industry looking backwards to where some of these ideas came from, and you track all those things back. Now it's 2024, go back 100 years, that's where the seeds of all these things started. Sure, the world has changed, but the underlying tenets, how to think, systems thinking has not really gone away. It's still there, more more needed than ever, especially when dealing in complex industries and complex work. Well, and the reason why like these things still make sense, right? You know, early days of DevOps, you know, I don't think anybody's really new. I mean, I'll I'll be honest, like in the earliest group of people who were running DevOps days, like we were thinking we were creating something new. The head fake for us was we learned that a lot of it was already discovered with Lean and we were just a variation of Agile and Lean. And then again, the the onion starts getting peeled like, okay, Lean come from well it came from Toyota. What, what Where did that come from? Yeah. And, and you're right to say that literally two of the core principles, and, and the others are sort of lying in wait, but two of the core principles of the four components of uh, profound knowledge come at the beginning of the 20th century. The first is comes from, and this was what, and I, I got to tell you, another guy I got to do a shout out to is Jay Bloom, who's just you know a wicked smart person, awesome dude. One of the influences of Deming was a book by uh, a guy named C.I. Lewis, right? And he wrote um, World in the Mind Order. And Deming said it took him six times to read the book. Now, I think he was being a little bit, you know, but I realized, wow, if Deming took six times, maybe I ought to get like a pull of Tom Sawyer. So I got shaped to read it for me and like I went through the whole thing. And then I read it, you know, after he did. So I, so I had a little bit of a cheating jump start. But I mean, that book is written in the early 20th century, which is the first American philosophy based on pragmatism. And pragmatism is basically an American version of epistemology or going all the way back to scientific method. Right. So when we talk about, you know, I mean, in the lean world, they'll talk about PDCA, which is wrong. It's PDSA, right? But we we talked a lot early days of DevOps about hypothesis-driven and, and scientific. Right. And, and, you know, you read my Rother's book, Toyota Kata, you know, and the Improvement Kata, which is all. Well, the foundations of that stuff, I mean, go back to Francis Bacon, but like the American version of that is pragmatism. And I tried to really capture that. And then in the early 20s or late, you know, the you know 1920-ish, you have Schuert creating this yep. um, one-page memo, which is a revolutionary way to sort of think about quality, which basically becomes the, his, the theory of variation. So you, you have these two incredibly, and that's why Deming just eats it up, right? He knows this is the right way to think about things. And yeah. he just drives that stuff in. You know, Schuert was great because he did it for manufacturing. Deming did it for everything. Yeah. 
He took yeah. those ideas. And then, you know, Demi got to sit in on some early, you know, he, him and uh, Ashkoff, right? They were both good pals. And they get to sit in on uh, Bert, Bert Nafley, who was like the creator of General Systems. So, like, he's early, early in on the system. And then winds up at Aberdeen with Norbert Weir and Herbert Simon and, you know. Reading your book and the stories you tell there just makes me think of how, by chance, how the world really is. Just that those people happen to be together in a certain time, doing yeah. a certain thing, and then they happen to, you know, fan out and come back together in a certain, you know, in different ways. Like, I was, uh, in preparation for our conversation today, I was reviewing uh, the manuscript you sent me and looking at my highlights and one thing stood out just maybe just made me chuckle when i read it you're telling him i think it was the first time that deming went to japan and he's in the meeting at mount hakone Hakone, yeah, hakone yeah. you have a quote somewhere from one of the the execs who says we didn't trust him but we just said yes because we didn't we, didn't, we wanted to save face and it just turned out that he was right I was like, my God, that is just hilarious. The fact there's just so much little culture there in that, oh, we want to save face, but hey, it worked out for them, you know? Yeah. And it's funny too, like the focus on SPC, you know, the st statistical process control, just there's always something interesting to me about, for whatever reason, it just fit there after World War II in Japan. There was, I think one of the things that we miss in this story you know, to that point about the documentary of Japan can, why can't we? The difference was that in the late 40s, there was such intrinsic motivation among those people to recreate their society, recreate their industries in a way that, frankly, the United States never has. We've never had to discover that kind of intrinsic motivation. That's the thing, right? They're, they're a tsunami culture. They've always had this sort of get decimated and built. And then, you know, you know, one of the books I use as a great resource was The Reckoning by Havelsham, right? And boy, he has the greatest picture of how bad it was, you know, after World War II. Like you couldn't, getting the lights turned on, roads, food, people were starving in subways. I mean, it, the decimation, I'm not even, I'm not talking about Hiroshima, I'm talking about Tokyo, right? Mm -hmm. like, I mean, you couldn't drive. Not, I mean, so there was almost a like, and the thing when it, that Hakon thing, right? In fact, I asked Doris Quinn this, and she gave me a, huh, that, I think that might be right, which is Deming had, you know, the, the strong epistemology, like the theory of knowledge he had, mm -hmm. understanding of systems because he had sort of worked. I mean, imagine you got to work in a place with Claude Shannon, Herbert Simon, uh, Ashby, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and Norbert Wiener. Like, come on, man. Like, and, and he had the variation stuff down, right? So he came in heavy with that stuff, right? I think Hawkon, not Hawkon, Hawthorne <laughs> was such a sort of a, a weird place in that it was your, it was sort of like your, in the factories, it was like the coal plant, you know, mills, but outside the factory it was this utopian great life. And I think he had this notion for the joy of work, mm -hmm. but I believe, I believe, you know, and Endorse agreed with it that. It was probably Japan that solidified that fourth, the psychology, the intrinsic motion to see those people and have, you know, like see everything he believed. And like even going back to Hawthorne, like what he saw was this complete discontinuity between like the, the way you people work and how they sort of live. But they're in the same place. And and the biggest thing about Hawthorne, too, like to that sort of joke, which is, you know, we, we sort of just did what he said. They, there was also a lot of quotes was he was the first person that came there and believed in him. 
you know, like all these other guys who come in, like, do this, do this, get out of the way, don't think, you know. And and by the way, the people that he worked with were like the Manhattan Project, you know, the, the Aberdeen Project, like the Herbert Simons, the Herbert Wieners. These, Juice was basically the Japan version of these, you know, pipe-hitting mathematicians, statisticians that were doing wartime stuff, like the Abraham Walds and all that. They, like, that was the Japanese version. So they're getting dumped on by everybody who gets over there as if they're idiots. Like, ah, I don't even ask that question. You never understand it. And Deming comes in, gives him complete faith. He believes in him. And Deming says, you know, I think in, in like Deming's been quoted multiple times that they were his best students he's ever had. So it's like this unbelievable opportunity of somebody who doesn't come over and just start yelling at him and like, you're the, you know, we're the conquerors. You know, he comes in with this gentle giant and he helps and he buys food. He sneaks off the, these are the kind of stories that Michael Lewis would t- would have told, I believe. I'm not saying I'm as anywhere talented as Michael Lewis's writer, but Debbie would sneak off to get to the P- PX to give him food and he'd show, you know, he loved those people. He loved the culture. He loved everything about it. Yeah. It's one of those markers you can tell too. So for, you know, for people who travel internationally, if you're going to go and you know, spend time working with people in a foreign country. Like if you don't go out to eat with them, you don't just hang out with them. It's like, what are you doing? You know, you're not really connecting with the people. You're not truly open in the way that you need to be. And, you know, that kind of gets me to one of the other recurring, this is just my personal take, that there's like this misconception in a way, the way that DevOps and Lean, we think about efficiency is not just about, it's not like RPMs in an engine or just getting people to do something quicker or faster, but it's really unlocking humans' creative potential to solve problems and trusting knowledgeable people to do what is right and to just tackle and overcome challenges in a way that I think is very humanist. And there's many stories that demonstrate that kind of thinking or like that kind of behavior endemming for, as you say, his students, his approach to learning, his approach to teaching. And like the work is just secondary, but you can actually find joy in that in a way that's separate from efficiency as measured by output in some way. Do you get what I'm driving at? Yeah, no. And I think that goes back to sort of the the whole notion of like theory of knowledge, right? Which is, you know, I always think, you know, we talk about blameless postmortems and, you know, there's great stories by Etsy where, you know, if everybody agrees on something, they know something's wrong. You know, John Osborne gave great presentations. And and a lot of that was, you know, what they knew it or not, or indirectly or directly came from sort of Deming principles, you know, or really not Deming, but really going back to pragmatism or just plain old epistemology, which is, you know, the, the idea, like the, the beauty of like PDSA, right? So PDSA is sort of Deming's codified implementation of epistemology or system thinking or what Mike Roth would call improvement kata, right? And what it does, it allows anywhere from the senior, I've been doing this for 50 years, I know everything about the system, to the person who's been on a job for a week who can say, hey, I think there's a problem there. And the scientific method is like, like you can't argue and say, you don't know, you know, I've been here 50 years, you've been here like two months. No, no, it's an experiment. Do your experiment. You know, sort of in the in the you know the plan, do, study, act, right? Like everybody gets to sort of participate when it's all science based. That sort of really breaks out in in sort of cognitive bias and like if you sort of understand the theory of psychology. But but I I do think that um, 
the theory of knowledge is just it's it's an equalizer. It it it, it sort of breaks through diversity problems. It breaks through the person who's been here for fifty years, because if everybody's sort of on that same page, then it, it's just you know there's no wrong, there's no right. It's an experiment. Yeah, and this is why I like the system of profound knowledge because it gives you a lexicon in a way to communicate this mental model to other people, you know, and uh, Gene and Steve's new book just came out, you know, wiring the winning organization. And what you were saying there about like, it's, it, it's an experiment. You know, now we have a reference point for, you know, quote, amplification, you know, building in that culture of identifying the failure signals, stopping when they occur and to deal with the problem solving. And doesn't matter what part of the organization is amplifying the need for those problems, but everyone is culturally attuned to stop and pay attention and engage in the problem solving. If they're 10 years experience or one year experience or one day, in my experience, like the people who are the first in the door have a better sense of what the problems are because they have not been, uh, you know, trained by the system one way or the other to ignore them. Yeah. There was an uh, early days of, uh, you know, early days of DevOps, right? Like, or even like pre DevOps when I was sort of starting thinking about sort of high scaled operations, you know, so that there was a lot of discussions about, you know, sort of a new way to do operations and infrastructure, you know, you know, so cloud was coming out. And so like, you know, some of the early cloud stuff and, you know, I was involved with like, you know, one of my com- early companies that I worked with was Chef. And, and so there was, so Chef sort of predates DevOps in some ways, not by much, but there was, you know, the, the thing that you sort of learn is experience, right? Like, you know, the, I, I know what I'm saying. Facebook used to come to the early DevOps days, right? And they would say, you know, some, they'd say, talk about like, hey, you know, we, our, our developers, you know, push code to production before they even do their sort of HR paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. And then, at one time I remember somebody asking like in the front row, it was like sort of a hardened, like, you know, this is terrible. You can't do this, you know? He's like, what happens if they break the system? And it was such a great answer. The, the guy says, if they break the system on their first day of work, they get an, a, a reward. Reward, yeah. Because you like, just discovered that means something. All the geniuses that are, he didn't say that, but all the geniuses that yeah. have built like incredible infrastructure that work on it and build resilience every day long, and you figured out why you'll break it, you're a hero. That's the way you want to think. And and you know, and I I don't want to maybe at the end I'll talk about my new book, but I'm learning a lot about like I'm following the history of AI. And and there's so many corollary. I keep I want to find my holy grail is the how does Deming fit into this? Now, if I don't know if we're gonna be able to do that, but everything I about the idea of AI is about how you how we've modeled machines off the way we believe humans learned. And right. humans learn from failure. You know, the, yeah. the baby doesn't touch the stove the second time. The baby understand a, a, a child understands gravity at about eight months. Why? Because that's about the time they're about to walk, right? And you know, because they fall all the time. So, like, and and you know, somehow the the anti-deming culture, you know, that like comes into like 80 and then you get lean and you get agile and you get DevOps, right? Is that you can never fail. And so this sort of command and control, which is like antithetical to to the you know, the you know, sort of all the components of system thinking and and psychology. Um, but it's this idea, like, and you can still see executives today, like, oh no, we we don't tolerate failure in this organization. Like, no, the the experience of humans is unconditionally built on failures. 
And that's what theory of knowledge is. You don't know what you don't know until you basically test it. And more often than not, you're wrong. Yeah. You know, I read the book, uh, The Principles of Product Development and Flow, and that's a really dense book. But one thing I remember from that book is the optimal failure rate is 50% if you want to learn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think to like experiments that I've done, like even with this podcast and like at work and things, and I'm nowhere near 50%. Maybe I'm not being aggressive enough, but it just goes to show you, you know, like if you really do care about learning, you got to fail a lot. You got to try a lot. You have to put yourself into um, uncomfortable positions and be okay with that. You know, it just, I think it's why Deming just resonates so much with, with me is it just opens the door to a growth mindset. If you adopt these things, you know, there's nothing limiting about them. It's just like, how do you know what you know? Why do you know it? And how can you learn more? That's right. That's right. And what are the sort of the, 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 what are the, you know, I mean, there, you know, you know, it's the other thing about what I'm learning about AI, there is positive bias and negative bias, right? Like bias works really well. There's some things that you like, you don't want to like have to think out the the 4,000 steps that you want to do. Right. Right. But there are other things that you wind up doing these patterns that get you into trouble. The whole bias thing is really interesting, but like, that's like, again, theory of psychology, understanding psychology, which is at least taking, you know, the whole idea I used in the book is this idea of, you know, a lens that has these four components. Look at every sort of complex, everything is complex systems, right? So look at a complexity through these four lenses. You say, okay, you know, do I understand what I know? You you just said this, right? You know, how do I know that this is correct, right? Like variation or analytical statistics, which is really a variant of variation. Um, And then there's, okay, let me check for, you know, it's sort of like the, um, Arduous, right? Um, the ladder of inference, if you've ever heard yeah. that, right? Yeah. Like it's that forcing function to make sure you get out of that sort of um, what I call the inference loop, or it's that that loop that sort of creates dangerous thinking or unhealthy thinking, right? And and so that's just another lens that you, and then you sort of, you know, and again, this is where it like gets awesome because you take all that and then you put the whole idea of systems thinking as a wrapper around it. Yeah, trying to shift the direction of the conversation a little bit, you know. Both you and I have learned about Deming, studied his history, read his books, and in our own ways, tried to put his ideas into action. So my question for you, John, is let's say that you're in a, like an engineering manager position. You're, you're definitely in a leadership position, but you're not in so-called top management. How do you put Deming into action? Yeah, I think you have to... Um... Use whatever tool you need to adopt those principles, you know. So, I mean, I could say, you know, give my book to your executive, right? Uh, you know, one of the early hacks of DevOps was people come up to me in my presentation, like, John, I work for a large insurance company. I don't know how I'm ever going to get my company to do the things you're talking about, although I know they're right. And then I'd say, well, here's your hack. Go ahead and buy a physical copy of the Phoenix Project. Give it to your boss. It's got to be physical. And they won't read it. And then you come back, though, you, you, you know they're not going to read it, but you sort of, you gamify it by saying, you go to them like in about like two weeks and like, what did you think of that book? And they're like, <laughs> you know, I still didn't read it. And then you say, oh, okay, well. And then you, this happens like three times, right? And then right. the third time they're like, they feel guilty. You know, he, he or she went out of the way to pay 20 bucks for this book. They gave it to me. They want me to read it because they want to make things better here. I'm going to read it. 
You know, so I think you could read a book about Deming and take that approach. But probably which is more fundamental is understanding the tool set is vast. When we think about, you know, PDSA, we can find the lean version of that. We can find the Toyota Kata version of that. Mm. We could read Jeffrey Liker's books. Katie Anderson's book is incredible. But what I need you to understand is this notion of scientific method. It has to be a systemic way we operate. And then we need to be better about, like, I love the work you did with statistical bias control. I mean, talk about an underserved superpower that we don't use in IT. Oh my gosh, it's sad. It's like, yeah, it's, it's tailor-made to so many problems that we have, but yet Unbelievable. we're just- Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I yeah. saw the stuff you did with the data dog damage. It's great that we're getting, and it, I've got a guy who was in my book club that's now doing uh, security stuff with it. Um, you know, so it's great to see people, but like, it's it's such an undertapped gem you know, so again, that one, just go at it. Donald Wheeler's book is probably the best book if you really want to go deep there. You know, and then you could go with Senge or um, or Kahanahan for the theory of psychology, right? Like, so again, what I'm saying is, well, first off, you got to read a lot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and then second is like Deming's got the principles, but don't get hung up on like, if I can't get my, my organization to adopt full Deming, just get them to adopt the ideas because the tool set of those ideas is all over the place. Yeah. You know, the tools is one thing. I mean, the tools are very squishy. You can map them to your current condition. They're, they're quite flexible. I mean, I have my own little story about how I kind of came to put these into my own daily work. And it's like, first, just try to model the behavior you want yourself. And then in your own little circle of control, like in your team or in your local group, try to bring people over to a certain way of thinking and then a way of working, right? I've read some books recently as Atomic Habits and Adam Grant's new book, A Hidden Potential. And they both say the same thing, but in a different way is like, it's easier to change your behavior first than change your thinking. So if you change your behavior, thinking will adopt your behavior. So get the behaviors going, right? And so for me, that was leaning more into more visual management, thinking in terms of, batch size controls, adapting more Kanban type things, getting people to think in terms of the scientific method, like, show me what you know, I'm going to ask, how do you know what you know? And if we can't answer that, well, let's go and see. And then just keep doing that, right? Like, I've, I've said, go and see so many times in the last year, it's just like built into. No, no, it's it's a great. um, Well, the other thing too, is uh, I think it's, you know, we, we get caught up on these abstractions that get us in trouble. You know, Simon Wardley has these funny things about the website for strategy. It's like a Heroku app that like, you know, you put in your sort of question about strategy and it just comes back with like a canned response, you know, like, yeah. like a big five response, right? And and I think these these things that get in our way is we talk about like a strategy or we, uh, you know, we use these sort of things that sort of get us in trouble as like things can never break. You know, we got to go fast. And, you know, like th- these are things that get us in trouble because we're not, we, we use it and we communicate and we're not really talking to each other and we're not learning anything. Right. And we can never fail in this organization. We've got to go fast. We've got to do more with less. Right. You know, and, and these things become part of our lexicon as opposed to like breaking down. What do they mean? Right. What do you mean? Hey, boss, when you said um, more or less, what exactly did you mean? Right. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think there's um, we we have to. And that's where the sort of the Senge and Kahanahan stuff get, works out really well. Right. Because, you know, uh, thinking fast is slow. Right. Like 
it is the sort of the those cognitive biases that you get stuck in and until somebody sort of forces you to sort of reverse engineer how you're thinking about the problem you wind up you know just having these sort of nonsense uh, conversations that never solve any problems well that's the real power of conversations and asking the right questions i mean there's a whole other area of study on what are the right questions to ask how to you know how to write questions and you know we get a little bit of this from you know taichi ono maybe to a fault you know he's not going to tell anybody anything all he's going to do is ask questions you know, <laughs> and that's a, like can be a real hard way for people to learn. But to put some of Deming's ideas into practice is really for each person is learning to think critically and to approach people with a curious and learner's mindset and just ask the how questions. Well, you know, the, some of the, the the best people I know that I've learned from, you know, Andrew Schaefer, Andrew Clay Schaefer, you know, I love that guy. He's like my best friend. He's done so much for my career. He's just a great human but I want to punch him in the nose a lot of times because he is that Toyota Ono. But what he does, he doesn't get you, let you get away with just saying something. And so that's where you get frustrated. Like, Andrew, Andrew, like, you know, and he's like, but why? What is it? And then he makes you, and then at some point you realize, oh my God, that was a great dialogue because I didn't really understand what I thought I understood. Or in some cases, he gets to understand something that he didn't understand, but like he won't let you get away with. You know, I I talked to um, you know in Katie Anderson's book, she talks to the a gentleman who literally hired in Toyota in 1960, like three or something like that. You know, and he worked with Ono, and he like a lot of people didn't like Ono, you know, because he was like, you know, oh, can you just give it a break, you know? But like they're the ones that are just really sort of forcing you to think in a systems way like don't you know don't just give me a word you know john osbar is a good example too like i have these two-hour debates with john osbar about subjects right you know john is yeah. into adaptive capacity and all but you know i remember when i first learned uh, about kenevin i had asked oh, john yes. so i was all excited about kenevin and i thought and i asked john about kenevin he's like no i don't like it I'm like what? what do you mean this is like amazing and he says it's an abstraction it, it simplifies so that's the, I mean, that's another area. I did try to cover a little of that, like I've got some of the Sydney Decker's work in my book and, and tried to do a little bit of the systems thinking from Herbert Simon. And, but like the beauty of the, the, the David Woods, I even cover a little bit of David Woods work in the book. And, and, um, and if you've never heard of these people, you should write them down and you go research them or ask Adam and myself, we'll point you in the right direction. But they, you know, they hate abstractions. They hate, you know, sort of, when you were talking about behavior, I was, I was sort of forgetting what, what I wanted to make. So, like in the early days, we'd have, and including myself included, we'd think like, you got to change culture. You got to change culture. What does that mean? It, what, what you really do is you change behavior. You don't change culture. In fact, culture is probably the thing that made that company great. It's the behavior that you don't change culture. You change behavior. We get ourselves in trouble, you know. And again, that's why I really think the work from, you know, John Osborne, Dr. Woods, I mean, unfortunately, Dr. Cook was a beautiful person. He's left us. But David Woods, and like they are very much like Andrew, but in, in sort of resilience and adaptive capacity, where it's like you, you can't get away with just, you know, splatting words on the board or abstractions on the board. Yeah. You know, there's so many, I have so many just Deming quotes just stuck in my head, passages uh -huh. or whatever. But you're, you know, talking about changing behavior and changing culture is like one thing I remember from the new economics. And he's, you know, I've read all these books. He's he's written so many articles that they just get right. That's the right. quote. You don't know, the, I don't even know the original origin of some of the quotes. I just know where you can find it again. But in the new economics, he says, 
practice means nothing without theory. So if you try to change your behavior without understanding why you're doing that behavior in the first place, you're not actually going to embody the thing that you want. We, that's how we get back to sort of the 80s. And, you know, we have out of the crisis and this moment in U.S. manufacturing where these companies, they try to imitate without the theory. They copy the behaviors without the understanding of why they're doing things. You know, you can't just have Kanban. You have to actually stop and deal with the problems in the system. Yeah. And, you know, and that's why Deming hated MBOs. I, I, I've made the argument and I've actually done a presentation at one at Slocon way back a while back where I said, you know, Deming would have hated, um, would hated um, SLOs. Uh, no, uh, no, he'd love SLOs. He'd actually love SLOs. He would hate, um, why, why am I blanking on what everybody is doing right now? Google and what's the thing that came from uh, Intel, Andy Grove, and then OKRs? OKRs. Darn, God, like, don't get old, Adam. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, OKRs. I, my presentation was he would hate OKRs. And the reason why he'd hate OKRs, same reason he'd MBOs, because, you know, he didn't ever use the term management by means. But what he cared about, and this is, I think, in new economics as well, where he, he talks about, I want to know the method that you used. I don't care what the, what the outcome was. And, and this was pure Toyota. Rata talks about this. The thing that made Toyota great, which was when they learned something, they basically made sure everybody learned that. And so it's a it's not about the results. Like the, and then you get into the gamification of how humans can sort of, but even like the point that Deming, to your quote that you had, and what you know, what the way he would talk about any of these sort of results or objectives or is like. I want you to understand the why you got that number, not that you got that number, because that's where the magic is. You know, um, you know, Lord Nelson, right? Lord Nelson said, if you can make that number this year, why didn't you do it last year? Or how are you going you know, to do it next year? If you don't know how you made that number, you know, we get fixated on MBOs, you know, and then there, there can be good versions of OKRs. But the point is, every implementation I've seen of OKRs, are basically the word results is the killer. If we focus in on the results, then they become part of like, do you get your raise? Did you make your result? Did you? And the reason we like SLO, so like, the, you know, the thing I, I said in SLOCON was Deming would have loved SLIs and SLOs because the, the SLOs are backed by the method, it is the definition of the method. So he would have been a huge fan of, you know, sort of SRE, SLOs. Um, not so much SLAs, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's where you take something like OKRs, put it in sort of an ecstatic context, think about what it is, what's its purpose for. But then you put it into a socio-technical system. Right. Incentives are there. Things are yes. different, you know? You can't get around it. You can't, even at the best intentions of why that was supposed to work and the why it usually never works is because the R. And I have to keep beating this drum on like why it's just sort of see Deming and everything is that, you know, that comment I just made, you, you have to see that by adding something like OKRs and putting it into a management or like a, you know, an organization is changing the system. And that changes how the whole system operates, how people see themselves, their interactions with the work, how they prioritize things. And that changes all sorts of dynamics of this whole, this whole thing that everything is in fact interconnected. And if oh, yeah. you, like, oh, that's yeah. just something... It's explicitly stated, but it's also implicit to all of the other things that we that Deming talks about. And that's, I didn't really thought that's a really good point, Adam. Like, like I've always made the argument that Deming would hate OKRs because 
most implementations just focus on the results and then people get stuck out. You know, I mean, again, the reason I like SLIs, SLOs, because they're decoupled from the human. I mean, there could be bad implementations of it, but in general, the SLI is, is coupled with something that is, you know, sort of a, a backed a by reality, you can measurement that's empirical. And the OKRs are not really, they're sort of human, like you're going to have to get this, you know, what's your objective and what's your key and what's your result, right? Key result. And But the thing I think you just pointed out, which is pretty awesome, is apply SLPK, system profound knowledge, to your implementation of OKRs. And that's the right answer because that's where you would find. So then instead of me just arguing OKRs suck, you know, which I get a lot of pushback on that. <laughs> oh, I could, oh, yeah, certainly I could imagine that. But, but the real answer is go ahead and apply system profound knowledge against your implementation OKRs. And yeah, then key you're, being your implementation of OKRs. Because you'll be even, able to explain to me or explain to yourself whether they suck or not. Because yeah. if you take the systems approach, if you're, you're moving out the bias, you're understanding the lens of bias. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. A profound point. Oh, well, thank you. It's funny, you know, we take all these different sort of organizational constructs like OKRs, SLOs, even things like Kanban and Encores, all these things. And they're all, you read about them kind of in a static context. You know, this is the aim of these things. This is the mechanics of how these things work. That's all well and good. But then the moment you go to the Gemba and you try them, especially yeah. in your organization, you find out that, wow, these, this is not at all how I thought this was going to work. You know, and back to my, like the question I asked you about how do you put these ideas in action? One thing that I've learned is you got to be really patient because it's going to take way more than 50% failure rate to make progress. Like it's going to take you weeks and months of even repeating yourself over and over and over and over and over again to people to the point where you feel like, God, I'm so tired of saying this, but that's the point when people are just starting to actually listen a little bit. Yeah. You know? Change is hard. We have been institutionalized in a, a very negative way to think. The, you know, the Western culture, you know, still to this day. So you've got, there's a lot of obstacles here, you know, and then there's sort of the, the corporate money machine of like, yeah, that all's great, but, <laughs> um, you know, so you've got all that. And then, you know, you have the whole um, failure thing, right? Where like, you know, there's executives that will basically say, you know, like under their breath say, yeah, no, I know it's the right way, but you're never going to hear me talk about failure. So it makes it just very hard because they're all counterintuitive, right? And But until you can sort of see the, you know, and then the other problem you have is persistence, right? Like there's been some great stories of early DevOps that, you know, even like the Etsy's or, you know, what um, Courtney Kisser had originally done over at Nordstrom, right? Retail just, you know, is a very hard game. And a lot of those early DevOps people, they weren't persistent in, in keeping up that sort of what they had built bring in a new executive, what's this DevOps stuff, you know, this is nonsense. There, there's a great podcast about, um, you know, you know, Ford Motors brings in, De well, the first one to bring in Deming, but then after Peterson retires, they go back to, like, some real terrible implementation of six, you know, so, like, there again, like, they have this, you know, Deming, you know, the, 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 the you went to Hakon, right, like, Deming tells the audience in Hong Kong, which is basically 80%, something like 80% of the w controlling wealth of Japan. Yeah. Like, the SMP, like the CEOs of the S&P 500, That's right. for example. And he tells them, if you follow my methods in five years from now, you will be a world-class economy, you know, within top whatever. And, uh, and, and, and it turns out to be exactly true. When he goes to Ford, so Ford hasn't been anywhere near GM's radar since like the 30s or whatever, right? 
And he tells them, if you follow my methods in, you know, in five years, you will be the leader. And, uh, and basically four years, they, they overtake General Motors for the first time in forever, right? So they nail it. They, like, get the whole gig. They understand what Japan did. They have the, the best mentor to come in and help them understand all this stuff, the variation. And, and then, you know, leadership change. And then, you know, for another 10 years, uh, they, you know, they're sort of like they, they fall into the Six Sigma trap. And, you know, and Six Sigma is an interesting thing because it, it should have been the most purest version of what Deming was trying to say, but it's like OKRs, right? The original book on OKRs is a great way to, to think about them. But then as humans, we screw it up. Six Sigma is a beautiful idea, but like when you get dogmatic and, and very specific about the implementation, you know, it just becomes terrible. And it always just goes to show you the most complex part about any system is the humans. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Take them totally. out. It's relatively simple. <laughs> yeah. There's the fraud. Well, that's my AI book, right? <laughs> so, uh, no. Now, sort of to close out the conversation, you know, you've been on this whole deep dive into Deming for years, I gather. The book's coming out, the print edition is coming out. So is this the end of your journey with Deming or is there something else coming up? No, I mean, it's, you know, it's like you said, it, it's with me now. Um, in fact, one of the things I'm doing is, uh, you know, I had to cut about 12 or 15 stories out of the book. So I realized I'm going to come out with a book called Profound Stories, which oh. are really all the books that I'd written that, that wound up getting dropped. And there's some great story. The problem with those stories is the question that kept getting asked to me is, what does this story have to do with profound knowledge? And unless I could tell a really strong narrative of what. So, but they're great stories. You know, Deming's wife was the woman who came, did the statistical analysis to come up with women's sizing. So I, have, I had a chapter called The Devil Wears Prada. You know, so I have I have the, I have the, the history of hackers. There's, so I've got like all these great stories that, so I'm going to hopefully come out with that and, you know, hopefully at the end of the first quarter as a companion book. And uh, so, yeah, continue to do the Deming thing. I've been also having some fun showing up at DevOps days. I bought like um, a kit of the Red Bead game. You get hardened to think, ah, you know, everybody knows Red Bead game. But then you, you, you do an open spaces with a bunch of people never heard of it. And it's just awesome because you get to sort of show people, you know, that, you know, the whole Red Bead game, right, is you sort of, fire people, yell at people. And it's all based on randomness. Like there's there's like 4,000, 3,200 of them are uh, white and 800 red and you mix them up and you get a paddle and people have to pull them out. And, you know, and statistically they're going to get about nine or 10 beads, you know, red beads, right? But you yell at them, you know, because one person gets three and they're like, great job, you're going to get a bonus. And it teaches you about variation. It teaches you about system thinking. It teaches you, and it's just fun you know, at some point, I'm thinking, wow, do people actually want to do this? But people have a blast when you do it and you make it fun. And so I've been doing that. I'll probably do a bunch of them this year. I'm going to do um, a workshop for IT Revolution sort of based on the 14 points. So yeah, I know you've seen like a lot of the authors are building workshops. So they've asked me to build a workshop. So I'm going to probably have that out sometime this year. So yeah, I know the Deming thing is I'm stuck with this guy, you know. For better or for worse, yes, with right. you as long as you're as long as you're kicking. That's right. So, John, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show, talk about the book, talk about your journey and story with Deming. You know, the book is Deming's Journey to Profound Knowledge: How Deming Helped Win a War, Altered the Face of Industry, and Holds the Key to Our Future. 
know, having read a man's manuscript of this book, I can tell you it is a lot of fun to read. I really enjoyed the stories and I think all the listeners will too, especially if you're familiar with Deming, you know, you've read the new economics, listen to this podcast. There is so much humanizing that happens in the book, just the stories, the background, the mem- like the biography, all this stuff. There's so much history and connections there that you're not going to find, I think, in any of the other books that I've read. So thank you so much, John, for writing this book and bringing this contribution to the conversation. So the floor is yours. What do you want the listeners to know? Where can they go to find you? I'm typically, um, you know, on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I, I'm probably doing almost everything I do right now on LinkedIn right now. Um, I'm Bachigaloop. You'll probably put that on there, you know, so you can find me through Bachigaloop at gmail.com and even on Twitter, I'm Bachigaloop. But like, I'm just John Willis Atlanta on LinkedIn. And, you know, I try to stay pretty active. I do, um, I've been working a lot with the generative AI. So I've, I've got a couple of notebooks now that sort of LLMs, if you will, that go out and, and look for all the information about Deming and then aggregate it. So I was doing that. I got a little lazy over the holidays, but I try to once a week, try to put out a little everything that's found on Deming and summarize it. And so just keeping that up and, you know, keeping the, and then I'm going to try to really get out there and do a lot of presentations on, you know, how profound knowledge. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the more interesting things is I, I've got a presentation I've done uh, a fair amount of times. It's called the anatomy of an LLM. And what I've done done with that is I use my the PDF of my Deming book. So I teach you how to engineer the data, sort of how to model the embeddings of your data of any corpus of data that you have. And I demo how to do that with my book. You know, one of the things that with the sort of the LLMs, the way to learn LLMs is use data that you're very familiar with, sort of vectorize it. So I walked through that tutorial and I'll be doing a lot more of those tutorials. So Using my book is a good way to promote the book, but it's a good way to show how you can um, data engineer stuff. In the whole idea is to build an LM doesn't hallucinate or minimizes hallucinations, and so the way you do that is through vector, you know, something called retrieval augmentation or vector databases. So anyway, so that keep your eyes out for that presentation. Well, I've never heard a technical system described as a failure mode of hallucinate like hallucination. I'm going to have yeah, to that's, adopt that's that the into whole, software. Uh, that's the thing that's going on in generative AI now, um, which is, well, yeah, anyway, like you don't want to let go here because that's the whole thing that I'm like having a lot of fun now in the new AI book because this bias, come, you start thinking about it in a whole different way. Level. Computers do what you tell them to do. They th- say the chat GPT hallucinates, right? But it, it, the hallucination is just doing exactly what you told it to do. So when code doesn't work and there's a bug, it's just doing what you told it to do. So that's a bias, right? Like So anyway, that, that gets fascinating. Yeah, so the whole idea of hallucinations is, you know, sort of interesting. You know, people get upset that ChatGPT said that Abraham Lincoln was born in some year he wasn't born, right? Like, well, that's because it's been trained on that data that way, right? All right. Well, you heard it from John. Best way to keep in touch with him is to follow him on LinkedIn. You can also follow me on LinkedIn in February. I will be giving away a print copy of John's book. So follow me on LinkedIn for details on that giveaway and you will win a copy of the print edition of John's book. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for John. We'll see you around. Thank you, Adam. All right. That's all for this batch. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between two Deming geeks. John and I mentioned a lot of Deming points. I've already covered most of them on the podcast, so I'll link them in the show notes. Also, my January 2024 giveaway for a free copy of Wiring the Winning Organization is still open. 
The next giveaway starts in February for a copy of John's new book. Go to smallbatches.fm slash 100 for the giveaways, related podcasts, John's socials, and where to buy the book. Wow, 100 episodes in four years. I gotta keep going. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. Until then, happy shipping.